Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Shared Ireland podcast series and what an exceptional guest we have in store for you all today. This lady is certainly known to most on Irish social media and further afield. Um, I'm going to actually read out her Twitter uh, profile bio here because I think it sums her up perfectly. Um, On it she states she's a rights campaigner, all about the Good Friday Agreement. She's also Vice Chair and Northern Ireland Spokesperson for VotingRights.ie. She fought the law and won. Um, She's a writer and she has her first book on the way, I also believe. So it gives Shared Ireland great pleasure to welcome along Emma D'Souza. Welcome to the Shared Ireland platform, Emma. No, no, no. It's a pleasure to have you on, Emma, and it's been something we've been meaning to do for over a year now, but sure, all good things come to those that wait, isn't that what they say? <laughs> that is a good thing. Emma, um, I'm sure you're potentially fed up explaining your case and Jake's case, but maybe for the benefit of our listeners, could you walk us through your case and just, I suppose, paint a picture of how it all started um, potential issues that you uh, came up against throughout it and um, how it has potentially been resolved, if you don't mind. Okay, well, I'll try to uh, cram five years into as uh, short and, and sweet a, a, a clip as I can here. <laughs> it, was, it was quite a, quite a journey. Um, me and Jake would both joke that uh, our case really began when we fell in love. And, of course, then he fell in love with Belfast, and he decided that this is where uh, he wanted to be his home. Yes. So this is way back in 2015. We got married here in Belfast, and we set out then to start our lives together. And back then, our biggest concern was, well, where are we really going to live? Because when you're two people that fall in love from two different parts of the world, it's very hard to make a decision about where you're going to settle down, because then, of course, you have to ship, ship all of each other's belongings over, and it requires immigration, and a whole lot of difficult process. Mm-hmm. Back then, our only concerns were, well, where are we going to set up our home and start our lives together? And we set our sights on here in Belfast. Mm-hmm. And we began the process then to stabilize Jake's immigration status because he's a U.S. citizen from Los Angeles. And we thought it would be a relatively simple process. We went through a solicitor, we put in all the paperwork and applied for him to be uh, in Northern Ireland on the basis of being the spouse of an Irish and EU national. Mm-hmm same entitlement that all EU nationals have in the United Kingdom, and all Irish citizens obviously have in the United Kingdom, so I didn't expect there to be any difficulties. But of course, as many will know, there were a lot of difficulties in getting Jake's status resolved. Mm -hmm. What happened initially was the British Home Office refused our applications, and they did so on the basis that they considered me a British citizen having been born in Northern Ireland. Now this was the first I heard of being a British citizen. But it's worth noting that back in 2015 when this started, my knowledge of the Good Friday Agreement was pretty sparse. I was someone who was politically not engaged and wasn't active in any way. So I had to do a crash course in understanding her rights in Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. And that involved examining the Good Friday Agreement. And I turned to my solicitor and I said, well, hold on. You know, I thought we had the right to be Irish or British or both. And I'm Irish. So that should be accepted by the British government 
And I think it's just important, Emma, to point out at this stage that it actually does state that in the Good Friday Agreement, correct? That's right, word by word. So there began our case. And in the early days, we thought that it was just a clerical issue, that somebody in the Home Office just didn't understand the complexities of Northern Ireland and wasn't aware of our special status. But of course, we were quite naive. And... After a time, we then came out to the public about our case. At this point, we had been in the process for about 18 months. And during this time, they had kept Jake's passport, so he had no freedom of movement and he couldn't leave the country. And it was very restrictive for us as a couple because we couldn't really start our lives together with Jake not having the ability to travel and also not having his passport for identification here in Northern Ireland. Of course. So it was quite complicated for us, and we were getting quite exasperated and I remember sitting down with my solicitor and going, you know, this has been 18 months and we can't leave the country. You know, he can't go home to his family. And this is all because they're telling me I'm something I'm not. And it's against the Good Friday Agreement. And I, I just didn't understand back then why this was so hard. So that's when we came out to the press and we soon discovered that many other families had been affected by the exact same problem. Mm-hmm. It turns out that it wasn't a clerical error, but rather they had failed to adequately implement that provision of the Good Friday Agreement. So our right to be accepted as Irish or British or both doesn't exist in domestic UK law. Mm-hmm. And actually, the 1981 British Nationality Act has been used to say that everyone in Northern Ireland is automatically British. Mm-hmm. So that's when we realized we were up against a pretty big challenge because we were going up against a government department, we were going up against a statute an act of parliament, and we were doing so with just two ordinary individuals who had no idea about politics or how to challenge a state. Yeah, so, it brought you into a world that you never imagined that you would be in. Yeah, that's it. I mean, we look back at those photos from our wedding in 2015 and go, wow, who were those people and what kind of problems did they have back then? Because we didn't know anything about citizenship law immigration, any of the issues that we've now become so um, so used to understanding. Mm-hmm. We had a much simpler, I would say, uh, life back then. But our case continued over the past five years. Over that time, we had success. In 2017, we won in the first-tier tribunal where the judge ruled that the Good Friday Agreement provides the people of Northern Ireland with a birthright to choose whether they're Irish or British or both and that I, therefore, was Irish. Mm-hmm. This was then appealed by the Home Office, who appealed it twice, and deferred it twice, and dragged the entire process out for as long as they could possibly make it, knowing that it was holding up our lives, knowing it was costing us immensely because we were funding the case ourselves. Of course. And doing so to make it as difficult as possible, because they would really prefer if we would just have given in. Mm-hmm. Of the Good Friday 
Solidarity Agreement. Absolutely. And I believe it was that political pressure building that actually caused the British government to concede to her case earlier this year. Mm-hmm. And we'll, we'll actually touch on a few of them as we go along here, Emma. How did it feel to hear the news, Emma? that the Home Office would grant a concession that British and Irish citizens born in the north of Ireland will be treated as EU citizens for immigration purposes. How Can you explain or try to put into words how, how yourself and Jake felt? I mean, it's extraordinarily hard to put into words how that felt to get that news because a concession from the British government is um, not something that happens very often. <laughs> it's certainly not a concession of this size that we knew was going to have a very immediate and direct impact on a number of families across Northern Ireland. Something that people might not be aware of is that Jake actually was granted an immigration status in 2018, which is called Leave Outside the Immigration Rules, or LOTR, or as we called it, Lord of the Rings. Um, Mm -hmm. That meant that he actually was okay to remain in Northern Ireland. However, we continued with the case because we were in touch with a number of other families who were being impacted negatively by this uh, policy. Mm -hmm. So we maintained the case to change the law for everyone because we knew that her case was the one that was going to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. And when we got that news, we knew then that all those families behind us were going to be able to benefit from that change. Yeah. And it was just amazing. It was a culmination of years of hard work and campaigning and hopes that we would make something happen, and we finally did. Yeah, very good. Um, Emma, you, you mentioned briefly there, um, your legal battle brought you to Capitol Hill in Washington. How important was it to highlight your case in America? And I suppose, can you give me some sort of an insight into how important the Good Friday Agreement is thought of within the political establishment there, but particularly within Irish-American circles? Agreement is held uh, of you know the highest importance um, in Irish America. When I went over to the U.S. earlier this year, thanks to the ad hoc committee to protect the Good Friday Agreement, who graciously hosted me in Washington, mm-hmm. um, and I met with a number of high-profile Irish American members of Congress, including Richie Neal and um, Brendan Boyle, and even Hillary Clinton in New York. And all of these people were already completely across the case. Mm-hmm. fully aware of it and have been following the case yeah. uh, from the U.S. and were completely adept at the issues and were you know, ready and willing to get behind us in any way they could in order to ensure this very important principle of the Good Friday Agreement was upheld. Mm-hmm. So when I went to the U.S., I felt incredibly welcomed. I mean, the doors were all opened, and um, I really felt like Irish America is going to be a, going forward an even stronger um necessary proponent in ensuring that the Good Friday Agreement is fully upheld and respected. Yeah, um, I, I suppose um, so one of the fears would be for for the Irish here looking across the water uh, from the time of Bill Clinton, you know, where there was a lot of emphasis around Ireland and he placed it very high in his agenda, is that that same scrutiny potentially maybe doesn't seem to be on us any longer. So so you're saying that that wasn't your experience, Emma? No, not at all. I would say um, whilst they might have been quieter over the last two decades since, since the 1998 agreement, I don't think that that desire to ensure that Ireland is top of the agenda and that the Good Friday Agreement is protected has gone away in any shape or form in the U.S. And I think that 
depending on the election results next week, um, that hopefully we might have a new president of the United States who will also be putting Ireland on the top of the agenda. So I take it you'll be a, a pro-Biden supporter then? Oh, yes, I would. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and uh, I actually have uh, been speaking to Biden's camp on the Good Friday Agreement and what we can do to ensure... Oh, that's very good. That's that's interesting. Tell me this: Do you do you yourself, Emma, have U.S. citizenship? Uh, I don't. No, um, I am happy just with the one right now, <laughs> but um, I have not obtained U.S. citizenship yet. Yeah, very good. Emma, having lived in the U.S., um, do you see parallels with the divisions over there and divisions in the North growing up? Um, and if so, what do you think are worse? in the U.S. and I only lived in the U.S. for a short period of time, only six months back when me and Jake were oh, okay. um, dating before we got married. But I have been examining the divisions in um, the U.S. compared to the divisions in um, Ireland due to my book that I'm working on, which covers a lot of these issues. Mm-hmm. And I do think that there is a similarity. Of course, it's a similarity really between all divisions across the world. Yeah. Um, we see it in many countries and it's really at the center of, of these divisions is each individual's um, desire for self-determination mm-hmm. and for equality and rights under mm-hmm. the law. Yeah. That's at the centre of all these disputes. It's the same as, at the, as what's at the centre here in Ireland. Yeah. That um, striving for equality and rights under law between two communities. That's what we've been trying to do here as well. So there's definitely a similarity. So me and Jake actually... Um, me and Jake actually have a... Um, podcast that we've been working on recently, the Hollywood to Hollywood podcast, which is a bit more informal. We were talking about our upbringings because we're both around the same age. Mm-hmm. So we talked about him growing up in Los Angeles in the 1990s and me growing up here and what the differences were. Yeah. And we find in having that conversation that there were some notable differences. You know, Jake grew up in, in a time, the same time, but he never had to think about whether his religion uh, or his citizenship or his identity was going to be uh, something to be worried about. You yeah. have to think about whether or not it was safe to go somewhere or not safe to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. And as a young person here, of course, I did have to think about this thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's quite interesting. And we'll touch on yourself and Jake's podcast um, in a little bit. Um, Emma, how helpful were the Irish government in your legal battles with the Home Office? Do you mind telling me? in providing moral and political support to me and Jake for mm-hmm. a case. Uh, we have been in conversation and in constant touch with the Department of Foreign Affairs probably for the past two years now. Mm-hmm. And I know that they were making representations to the Home Office and the British government for a long time, trying to get them to see sense. And from what I understand, it was quite difficult uh, to get that message across to the Home Office from their perspective. We have received immense political and moral support. And myself, I met with Simon Coveney, and I met with Leo Bradker in Washington, where he, in his speech um, at the Ireland Funds Gala, actually noted me in his um, speech there, which was a very exciting moment. Mm-hmm. So we have been quite fortunate to have quite high levels of support from the Irish government um, in terms of politically and morally, which has been reassuring to me and Jake. I'm sure, yes. Very good. Um, 
Emma, with a new government formed in the South earlier this year, there were suggestions in some circles that you may have been selected as a Senate representative. While ultimately that didn't materialise, would you like to pursue a career in politics, possibly? Um, yeah, I mean, I I actually had received correspondence uh, from both uh, Taoiseach Leo Varadkar and from Michal Martin in the week prior to the nomination uh, indicating that I was being considered. Mm-hmm. So this came as quite a surprise at the time and was an exciting period because it was an opportunity that I was interested in because it would allow me to continue my work uh, protecting the Good Friday Agreement and representing citizens in Northern Ireland and also being able to do so from um, an independent perspective yes. mm-hmm. is quite appealing to me because obviously I've been working independently and outside of party politics for this whole time and I find that outside of party politics I have much more freedom to push forward the agenda and messages that are important to me. Certainly. In terms of do I see myself going into politics in the future, I am interested pursuing politics mm-hmm. but at this point I haven't really found my political home yet yeah. I don't know where I would go or mm-hmm. whether that would be as an independent I would say at this point it most likely would be yeah, I, I personally, you know, just looking at politicians as we all do um, you know, the independent title is very attractive, obviously, because as you rightfully stated there, you know, you're not, your hands aren't tied in certain um, matters, you know. But then, obviously, the downside of that is you don't have the political animal behind you to, you know, publicise you and to um, help in campaigns and stuff. So it can be a difficult one. That's it. And actually, here in the North, um, it's even more difficult as an independent to be able to um, gain a, a public seat. In yeah. the south, there are more public representatives who are independent, but in the north in particular, it can be quite difficult for independents. So it's a tough uh, decision that I will have to at some point make if I do decide to try to run for office. Yeah. But um, as someone who's actually also studying a politics degree, I do have an interest in pursuing it at some point. Oh, um, I, if I was a betting man, I would um, put a wee wager on that we will definitely see your um, your poster up in a lamppost somewhere in the not too distant future. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'll have to wait and see now where that sign Yes, yeah, you're, 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 not, you're, you're not going to give me an exclusive here, I can see you anyway. <laughs> Yeah, okay. Emma, with Irish government being co-guarantors of the Good Friday Agreement, how important is it, do you feel, that Northern voices are represented in the Senate and even in the Dáil? I think it's fundamentally important. And actually, my greatest disappointment um, whenever the nominations were announced earlier this year was the lack of Northern representation, especially in, given the context of Brexit mm. and also given the context of, you know, challenges to the Good Friday Agreement as it is by her own case. Mm-hmm. I don't think um, there's been a stronger time where Northern representation is just so needed in terms of um, in the Southern government. So mm-hmm. I was deeply disappointed to see this complete lack of representation. And I think that it was also deeply disappointing for me because I've worked so well with the Irish government and I know that here a lot of people can feel like they're being left behind yeah. historically than the North has been. Mm-hmm. And it was just disappointing to see them miss an opportunity to send people a positive message that they're not being left behind mm-hmm. and I feel like that was a missed political opportunity and 
said, it reinforced this concern and fear that people have yeah. here, that they are being left behind, yeah. that they don't have representation. Yeah, and I, and so I, I guess... That, that needs to change. Yeah, and I guess even from a, a unionist perspective, not even re- reselecting Ian Marshall, that was the only unionist representative in the Senate. For for me personally, you know, that, that sent out a very a very confusing message, particularly on the back of this whole new shared island approach by by the government. Um, why wouldn't you include um, the only unionist representative they had, you know? It does seem quite counterintuitive, doesn't it? I think that um, in an ideal world, it would have been great to have representations from the three main communities in Northern Ireland. Yes. Of course, would be uh, from a unionist background, a nationalist background, and someone who actually is in the middle ground maybe doesn't identify as neither. I think that's also an important yeah. point that needs to be heard. And oh. I would like to have seen all three of those communities being represented in those six. But unfortunately, that's not what happened. Yeah, 100%. I echo that completely, Emma. Emma, the legal battle yourself and Jake, um, I, I, I guess it, it left you with a mountain to claim in terms of legal bills. However, generosity across the island of Ireland and further afield um, meant you cleared this up. I hope I'm right in saying, what did that mean to you and Jake, Emma? Well, when we first got the um, initial bill at the end of our court case, which was actually just for the Court of Appeal, which never happened because the Home Office conceded two weeks before that mm-hmm. court date, yeah. which is, of course, why we ended up with such a huge bill, because they had left it to the very last minute, and her legal team obviously had had to prepare, prepare all the briefs for yeah. that court hearing. So we were put into a position where we were hit with this final bill, um, which was just enormous to us. Now, over the years, the case has cost tens of thousands over the five years that we've just had to, you know, scrape together over time. But mm. getting a forty-five thousand pound bill at the very end was just an insurmountable uh, bill for us as two ordinary working people to of try course. and overcome. And it was really quite difficult because it was bittersweet for us. We had achieved a massive, massive concession that was a huge win for everyone in the north. At the same time, we had been hit with this really um, heavy burden in terms of how are we going to achieve getting this bill paid off. So mm-hmm. it was quite quite a hard period of time for us, but in the space of days, we had people from across the island of Ireland and beyond coming to our aid and helping to lift that financial burden from our shoulders. Mm-hmm. In the space of just three weeks, we had cleared the entire 45,000 pound bill, wow. uh, which was the last one of our, of our legal bills. And it still hasn't really sunk in that that many people supported us and believed in us and were so generous and mm-hmm. so kind. Yeah. And it was, um, you know, it was a difficult time over these past five years, but that rush of people coming forward to support us served as a really poignant reminder to us that we were never alone in taking this challenge Absolutely. Forward. We always had the people in the community behind us, and they really came forward to show us that at the last hurdle. Mm. And it was just an incredible experience that neither of us can still really comprehend that so many people were so kind towards both of us. Yeah, and I suppose, as you mentioned at the start, Emma, uh, this whole uh, story started when two people fell in love and, um, you know, you, you pursued this um, avenue um, for, for your own needs. Uh, um, but ultimately, you were actually, um, I suppose, treading on virgin ground on behalf of, of the entire community, you know? Well, this is it. I mean... We very quickly became aware that 
Ur case was the one that had the ability to push through some kind of change. Mm-hmm. And we knew if we didn't keep going, that change wasn't going to happen. So yeah. it became a priority for us to keep that going. Yeah. Well, well done you and I suppose well done the public and anybody that helped um, to contribute towards um, getting that legal bill sorted out. So, yeah, very good. Emma, in light of Brexit, <clears throat> pardon me, and growing momentum towards a unity referendum, is there a section of people that, I suppose, don't identify as nationalist or unionist? And... Any future border poll, I guess, this group will potentially be kingmakers. In your opinion, Emma, what is likely to persuade this group one way or another? Well, the, the people in the North that don't identify as unionist or nationalists, I mean, the internal political ideologies in Northern Ireland, this is something I've only very recently started talking about more openly. Yeah. And um, I myself, um, have only recently started to admit that I'm actually one of those leaders um, in Northern Ireland. I don't identify as unionist or nationalist. Mm-hmm. And um, I have found actually a surprising amount of pushback to people that belong in this category. Mm-hmm. I have found the arguments being made that some perceive those who ident- don't identify as unionist or nationalists as being sensitors, mm-hmm. or that you have to have, you have to be in one or the other. Yeah. And it raises a lot of questions around, well, what does unionism and nationalism mean? Yeah. Because is it only about the constitutional question? You have to either be for United Ireland or against United Ireland, and therefore you must be unionist or you must be a nationalist. So I've been trying to sort of um, analyze some of this stuff recently and dissect a few of the arguments around these two political labels. Mm-hmm. And from my own perspective as someone who does fall in the middle, and the reason why I have this um, view of not identifying with either is I believe that the perception of Northern Ireland through the lens of just being unionist and nationalist is actually used in many ways against us here in the North. A hundred percent. It's used as a political point scoring. Absolutely. Sort of down the, you know, batter the other side um, and it's used against people here. And it's also another way of sort of continuing to perpetuate segregation between communities. Mm-hmm. So for me, from a personal perspective, I never thought much about my political ideology um, up until our case began, because as I say, I wasn't politically active. Mm-hmm. And I was someone who traveled a lot uh, in my teens and early 20s. I wasn't really in North uh, much of that time. And it's only recently that I started to think more about these political labels and where I fall into them. And unfortunately for some, it's in that middle ground. Yeah. Um, so in terms of the perception that um, you know, these guys could be kingmakers when it comes to a poll, I do believe that's true. And I think that the key to a successful referendum on the United Ireland is actually going to fall down to practicalities. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be an emotive yeah. decision for a lot of people. It's going to be based on the economy. It's going to be based on the health service. It's going to be based on whether this new Ireland will be a better island. Yep. And I do think that it will be. And I think that you're perfectly able to have a view on the constitutional question and not identify as a unionist or a nationalist. Mm-hmm. I think I think um, I think you're right. First of all, and and also through this past few few years in particular, 
Um, you know, the whole argument about, you know, the benefits and the negativities of, of um, a new Ireland, a shared Ireland, um, the whole border poll question, it is, people are starting to drill down now. And, and as you correctly pointed out, Emma, you know, let's be honest about it here. Um, you know, you can wrap yourself in any flag you want, but it won't put bread in your table. And um, it is coming down to, you know, how will our elderly be treated? How will our healthcare system look after us? How will the economy function? Um, will I have more money in my pocket? You know, these are bread and butter issues that I suppose do affect people's lives on a day and daily basis. And while the whole emotive subject about, you know, the union or 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 Irish identity on all Ireland, while while it is obviously understandable. Uh, really passionate with with a large section of the community, but I think people are realizing slowly but surely that you know it's going to come down to um, working out a plan, um, costing it, and seeing um, you know selling the benefits I guess of of a new island to everyone. Yeah, I would agree with that, and um, I think that it's also really important that we are cognizant of the fact that the Brexit vote has you know. It has completely transformed it has. the political landscape of the North. Mm-hmm. And whereas before 2016, the question of reunifying the island might not have been in many minds, yeah. it obviously is now because Northern Ireland voted to remain part of the EU yeah. and we have a legitimate path back into the EU we through have. reunification. I think that does change people's minds and persuasions mm-hmm. as to the benefits of a new Ireland. And... For me, the biggest concern I have around preparing for that eventuality is that it will require years of research and preparation in order to really iron out all the issues that will be important to people. Mm-hmm. If you look at the Good Friday Agreement, you know, a copy was sent out to every voter on the island, yes. and then people were able to make an informed decision as to what they wanted to do, and they made, you know, the land side victory north and south for the Good Friday Agreement. People voted for that agreement, and they knew what they were voting for. And what I would be worried about is us having our own version of Brexit where, you know, we don't have the preparation and research done that is required. I would far rather see something similar to the Good Friday Agreement where people can make an informed decision. Absolutely, 100%. And and, and I guess for, for me and, and the shared... Ireland team, it's all about planning, it's all about preparation, it's all about having discussions and including un- uncomfortable, you know, uncomfortable discussions that, that maybe pro-United Irelanders don't want to have. But, you know, there should be no preconceived outcome before a negotiation begins and everything has to be on the table because, you know, we, we have to realise that, that this is going to be about comprom- compromise at times. Um, ugly and all as that compromise may be to to any of us. Um, what's your personal take, um, Emma, on the Irish government's new shared island unit? Um, do you see that as a positive thing? I think that any um, any initiative that encourages dialogue and engagement is a positive step. Mm-hmm. So I welcome the shared island unit, and in particular, I welcome the announcement last week, which gave us some much-needed clarity and um, transparency as to what the unit is going to be doing. Mm-hmm. I think, in particular, for me, um, the, the bringing in of the first um, dialogue series being new generations, which will be people who have been born after the Good Friday Agreement, mm-hmm. and that's exciting because I would like to hear their viewpoints as yeah. to what they believe 
uh, a shared island name. Mm-hmm. And um, I also thought it was encouraging that there's going to be, you know, heightened engagement and conversation in the site as well, because whilst many of us in the north might be thinking about the future of this island, because we're experiencing the negative consequences of Brexit and being dragged out of the EU against our wishes, mm-hmm. there will be many in the south that maybe this is not a big issue for them, that they're not really thinking about um, whether the constitutional question should or could be raised in mm-hmm. the future. So I think opening up, opening up dialogue across the whole country is a positive step forward, and I hope that that's going to be an encouraging step for the unit to do. I had received correspondence from Michal Martin last week um, discussing the shared unit with me and engagement with the unit. So I'm looking forward to hopefully working with the shared unit unit to encourage conversations around shoring up the Good Friday Agreement and ensuring that Northern representation is accounted for. Would you see a citizens' assembly type approach to this as being a runner, Emma? I think that um, it would be great to see a citizens' assembly being set up. I think considering even the poll we've seen there with listed talk that um, a citizens' assembly is a logical next step and it would be encouraging if that was a, a position that they took going forward. Hopefully that is something that they might come to see as necessary in the coming months or years as these conversations continue to grow. Mm-hmm. This could be a stepping stone to a citizens' assembly. We don't really know um, what the intention, full intention is, I think. Um, and some of the language around a border poll and um, these uh, issues have been a little bit divisive in terms of from the Irish government. I do think that it's counterintuitive to dismiss any possible border poll um, in the next five years of the government when it's a legitimate part of the Good Friday Agreement to aspire for reunification. So it's it's a bit of a glass half full with some shared island units, but I also have been a little bit sceptical as some of the language around the possibility of reunification. It shouldn't be seen as a divisive issue, a legitimate part of the Good Friday Agreement and a legitimate part of the Irish Constitution. Mm-hmm. Oh, you preempted my next question. I was going to ask you what what you made of Michal's um, <coughs> pardon me comments about no talk of a border poll for five years. But um, yeah, yeah I, I, I can't really I can't really decide if I think it's a diplomatic move um, in terms of trying to find language that um, is not going to rock the boat. I, 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 I think that's 100%. I think he was trying to, obviously, you know, appease unionism, and, but given enough to nationalism too, <laughs> that at least the unit would be set up. But, um, I, you know, my personal opinion and the Shared Ireland platform's personal opinion is that, you know, you cannot censor anybody um, looking their aspirations. You cannot put a time block on it for the next five years. We, you know, this cannot be spoke about. So I think, you know, I think if you're going to have an open, honest conversation with everyone, well then let's have that conversation, you know. But yeah, I agree. Um, Emma, with the legal battle, I suppose, consumed so much of your time, um, how now do you spend your time? And I suppose, you know, uh, as you alluded to there, um, you have a book in development um, can you potentially tell us a little bit about the book at this stage without obviously um, giving anything away? Um, of course, yeah. I The book is basically going to be about um, how individuals can challenge the state 
and change the law. Yeah. So relevance, of course, then to my own um, story. Um, and then I'm going to be encompassing how civil rights movements um, and how people coming together can have a positive impact, both historically and today in 2020 and beyond, how that continues that drive to try and get equality and rights um, across all societies. So it's an exciting book. I've actually working on some of the research on today and trying to get through that. So if you're asking what I do with my time, well, I'm still deadly busy because yeah. it, when we were doing the case, um, I was also, of course, working full-time, doing a full-time university degree, doing the campaign on top of the litigation. Yeah. And um, now I, I'm still doing the campaign. I'm still working within civil society, so... I do a lot of stuff with um, you know, the other human rights organizations. I'm in with the Equality Commission, working with them. And I'm still working on trying to scrutinize and ensure that any legislation coming forward to Northern Ireland is within um, within the scope of the Good Friday Agreement and adheres to that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm still doing a lot of legal work. Mm-hmm. Um, doing my full-time degree still at the moment in my final year. Good, good. I'm still working full-time. And i also writing a book. And I'm also writing on a more regular basis publications such as the Irish Times yes. and I also have three dogs and a husband so I don't really have a lot of time <laughs> Very good, well, you seem to be coping well with it tell me this, have you decided on a name for the book yet? Well, I have a name that I like but I don't know if my uh, agent would be too pleased if I was to share that just yet yes. Yes. Well, well, I'll tell you, with your permission Emma what I'm going to ask our listeners to do here is to um, underneath the podcast is to um, maybe give a few suggestions of what your book should be called, and so you never know, you might you might you might get another. I love that. I love that. That is a great idea. I'm fully behind it, and uh, who knows, maybe somebody uh, in the comments will end up having the winning title. And and they might even get five percent of all of all profits. You would never know. Well, no. <laughs> no, I'm only joking. I'll, re- I'll retract that statement immediately. <laughs> So there you go, listeners. Um, if you think you may have a potential name for Emma's new book, um, feel free to add them in the comments under this podcast. Uh, finally, on your book, Emma, when can we expect it to be released? Um, any chance that it'll be um, in time for Christmas so that we can buy it and give it to our friends and loved ones? Well, maybe next Christmas. Next <laughs> Christmas, I would say, will be much more likely. My God, I could never get it done this time. And that's that length of time very good uh, so we'll have to wait until uh, next year for it alright um, it's, uh, it's exciting to be able to put something together and it's almost cathartic in a way to be yes. able to discuss the case with the freedom to really um, go through what it was like emotionally to go through that process of having to go from you know an ordinary person to a full-blown political activist to taking on a monolithic giant um, and having some sort of success so it's a cathartic process and hopefully it will not be absolute crap it's like self-therapy <laughs> getting it out of your system yeah, it's a bit like that very good. Emma, you very kindly recently wrote an article for us here at Shared Ireland entitled We Have a Roadmap to a Shared Future If We Only Used It. I have a couple of wee questions for you here. For any of our listeners who haven't yet read your article, what was the core message of your article? The core message of the article is that we do have a roadmap to a shared future. And that roadmap is the Good Friday Agreement. One of the most difficult things for me to wrap my head around um, over this, um, you know, this journey that I've been on in terms of through politics 
is understanding why 22 years later we don't have many of the provisions and aspirations of the Good Friday Agreement enacted as law mm-hmm. and embedded into our society. Yeah. If we had many of these provisions embedded into our society, I think we would have a better society. The fact that integrated education is uh, still almost at a standstill with 93% segregated education here. Mm-hmm. Segregated housing is still an issue. We are still struggling with things like Irish language, with legacy, with identity, with citizenship. We don't even have a Bill of Rights. And if we did have a Bill of Rights, it's hard to see really how Brexit would even have been able to happen here. Mm-hmm. Very true. Tammy, this this isn't a question that I planned to ask you, but it just sprung into my head. And I know it's not your forte or your arena, but do you believe that that Irish citizens can move on properly from our troubled past without dealing with our past? And I suppose I'm talking about legacy issues here. Of course not. And process their own loss and grief and the fact that so many people have not achieved justice. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine for one second how that must feel for individuals. So it's very hard for me to speak yeah. as to whether or not they are, are going to be able to move on without justice. Yeah. How do you accept just not having justice? Mm-hmm. So that's a, a difficult question. But I do believe that in general, um, as a nation, we are able to move on uh, to a shared future and a better future. And I think potentially when the time does come, and it could be in five years, it could be in ten years, we have no idea when. But I do think that the process of reunifying the island of Ireland will be cathartic for this region and for people because it will be the start of a new chapter Mm -hmm. that we will be able to write um, for ourselves Mm -hmm. and be able to have a say in and to create and envision. Mm -hmm. And it will close many difficult chapters for a lot of people that have through centuries on this island. Mm-hmm. So for me, I think that is going to be the real start of the healing process. Mm-hmm. Very good. Um, just I'll use this opportunity to remind our listeners um, all our articles, including the one that Emma kindly penned for us a month or so ago, and our podcast can be accessed at sharedireland.com. Emma, you recently launched your own podcast, Hollywood to Hollywood. I love that name, by the way. It's very, it's very, very, very good. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that, Emma? And I suppose what ultimately inspired you to start the podcast? Well, we were inspired to start the podcast together because whilst I might be a little bit more vocal and more uh, in the public eye than Jake, uh, Jake is just as impassioned about issues around equality and Northern Ireland politics, and he has a unique perspective as someone who has come from Los Angeles and yeah. been thrown into the deep end here trying to navigate the complexities of identity in this region and the politics of it all. Mm-hmm. So we had come at it from the perspective of we wanted to be able to now, in a more open and, and casual way, discuss some of the views that we have around some of the issues relating to the North, but we also wanted to be able to have more um, lighthearted conversations around culture and around movies and around some of our other interests outside of politics. Mm-hmm. So for us, it's been just something to do for fun that is uh, a good process for us to be able to talk about some broader issues. 
Um, we just did a Halloween episode, which is just talking about scary movies, which Oof. is actually our favorite genre. Thank God we both like the same movies. <laughs> that would be terrible. Yes. Um, but the next one that we're doing is we're actually going to do one specifically on political ideologies and why Northern Ireland is continuing to be confined to the binary labels of unionist and nationalist and what do those two labels really mean. So we kind of go between uh, cultural episodes political episodes and back and forth, trying to find a balance between both of our interests. Mm-hmm. Emma, just again, for the benefit of any of our listeners that may not be aware of your podcast, Hollywood to Hollywood, can you tell us where it can be accessed? Absolutely. It is um, going to be on Twitter at the Hollywood to Hollywood podcast, and then you can actually get it on all the usual platforms, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. Um, it's available on all those as well. Very good, and I thoroughly recommend people tune in to give it a listen, absolutely. Emma, tell me this. Um, we're coming, I suppose we're nearly 45 minutes in here, and thank you very much for giving up your valuable time today. As you outlined, um, I can't believe how you actually um, have given us time, considering all the work that you're still doing, but um, we're approaching the end of it here. If you had the power to regulate social media, Emma, what would you do? And I suppose just a wee follow-up question to that. What's your thoughts on having maybe compulsory names and information to hold people responsible for what they write and say on social media? Yeah, I mean, social media is becoming a very toxic environment. And my experience of that is no different. I, of course, encourage discourse and debate. Mm. I think that um, for me personally, I really enjoy debating and discussing with people that hold an opposite view to me because it makes me understand their perspective all the better. Uh, it's something... It question my own belief system. So I do like to be challenged. I like to have those kind of conversations. Emma, if I, if I can just interrupt for a second, that's something actually that, that I really genuinely mean this admire about you is that, you know, if, if somebody answers you or, or says something, you know, you actually do answer them. And and I find that very refreshing because I suppose there's no point giving out opinions and ideas and people reply until you. And I, I see, I, I suppose in particular, I'm talking about a lot of our politicians, you know, there's no reply. But it's something that I've actually noticed about you. You do spend the time and, and I think that's brilliant. And you do reply to people. So um, personally, well done for that. Yes. And put positivity out into the world and actively engage in something that I've said or done. The least I can do is respond to them and give them my time because they gave me their time. I think there's a, there, there's, a, there's definitely a lesson also, for us all to be learnt there. Um, but also people who come at me with a negative opinion. It's important also to engage with them because as I've moved through the years of navigating social media as someone who's now more of a public figure than I obviously was in the past, I've obviously received a lot of negative attention as well, mm-hmm. and people uh, making maybe not the nicest of comments. Um, but I like to address those comments, one, because I find it's often um, a good thing to think about where that person is coming from, and I want to know where they're coming from and understand where they're coming from. But also, uh, with her case being so complicated, there was a lot of misinformation of being course. spread around the case, or indeed around our motivations yeah. um, and what we were trying to achieve. 
And I have no qualms with telling people my motivations and intent, and it's often not what they're trying to settle out to people. So I don't think it's a bad thing to, to challenge that, that misinformation. But to your original question of do I think it should be regulated, I do think it should be regulated because we have a growing amount of accounts that are you know, from people that we don't know who they are, their basis, and they're using social media as a means to batter people and to harass them and to target them. And I think that it's very difficult, especially in a political environment and in a place where we already have so much segregation and sectarianism and where we're trying to encourage more people to become politically engaged. We have this section of society who are trying to discourage people from becoming politically engaged or from expressing an opinion. Mm-hmm. And I think that that does need to be regulated because none of us deserve to have that kind of harassment or abuse yeah. on a daily basis being pushed into our private lives. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's incredibly negative and these spaces should be open. Of course, I support freedom of speech and, and openness, but I think that there needs to be some kind of regulation to protect people who are receiving this kind of constant abuse. Yeah, I would agree, absolutely. Just... I suppose keeping on on the social media um, aspect here for one more question, Emma. In your opinion, has social media or has it the potential to have a detrimental impact on our mental health? And I suppose, you know, your case in particular, and you alluded to it briefly there, that because it was, you know, so complicated and people, um, you know, have different opinions on your motivation and whatnot, what advice would you have for anyone listening, Emma, currently using social media and maybe has given, um, I think the, the, the social media uh, name for it is trolling people in a negative way, or maybe is receiving some, um, you know, trolls maybe um, after them. What advice would you give to these people? as the saying is, um, other people on social media, what I would say to them is ask yourself why you're doing that. Mm-hmm. And it's a question I also ask when I see these comments and people that do this on social media. I often think to myself, why does that person feel the need to make that comment? Yeah. What do they benefit out of making that comment? And with everything that's happening in the world, we're in the middle of a global pandemic, people are losing their lives. Is it not better that we try to put out positivity and positive energy into the universe and Mm -hmm. look after each other instead of trying to tear each other down? So to those that are making these negative comments, I think that we need to have a little bit of self-reflection and ask whether that's something they want to be doing and Mm -hmm. whether that has a positive impact on them personally, on their own mental health. Mm -hmm. Does it make them feel good to make these negative comments and target people? that 
you love and who love you. Mm-hmm. And to remember that those people that are making those comments, those are people that are coming perhaps from a negative place of their own. Yeah. And that that's an important thing for me. If I have negative comments from someone, I try to think more about, well, why does that person feel the need to say that? And they're not coming from a place, a good place. Yeah. And maybe they're not in a good place themselves. And that's why they're making those comments. I think you're 100% right. It's a slight window into their mindset. I agree with you. That's it. But in terms of um, if I think it has an effect on mental health, I think it does. And I've been asked before on how I deal with negative comments on social media. Um, and I just try to come at it from that perspective. I try to think about the fact that the person that's making those comments is doing it from a dark place themselves. And that it doesn't actually have an impact on my life. It doesn't affect my life. Yeah. And um, me and Jake have had our fair share of stick over the years. Um, I remember back in the very early days, uh, a lot of people would say that, oh, you know, I mustn't love him that much because I'm not willing to just sign a piece of paper in the Ninth British Citizenship. And someone quite cleverly made the joke of the Meatloaf song, I would do anything to love, but I won't do that. <laughs> That's and right. me and Jake actually thought this was quite clever and ended up singing that song and playing it on repeat for a week straight. Very good. was quite funny. So you, we try to take it um, not too hard yeah. and to have a little bit of perspective. Social media, it's not real life. Very, very wise words, Emma, and thanks for that. So, um, just before we finish, Emma, I suppose based on the conversation that we've had for the past 50 minutes, we always ask this question to everybody, kind of just to sum things up in your own words. And the question is a very simple one, uh, um, but it, it has got a, obviously a bigger answer. What is required to create a truly shared Ireland, in your opinion? Well, I think it was John Hume that said that we needed to break down um, the walls of hearts and minds. It might not be a direct quote, but along those lines. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's required in order to truly share this island. The real order is in the hearts and minds of people here. And we need to break down those barriers because we are all citizens, first and foremost, yeah. and neighbours, people. And these um, divisions that have been created here, those divisions are not necessary they're not there anymore. And I think that people need to move past um, what has divided us historically and to the future, which is a shared future together. So I think that the steps that we need to all take collectively is to understanding each other and having those conversations. And I'm hoping that that's the trajectory that we're all going in, where we're opening up and being able to break down some walls. Mm-hmm. Very good. I like that answer. Okay. Emma, um, just before we go, slight more light-hearted uh, ending here. Tell me the most famous person you have in your phone book. The most famous person what? The most famous person you have in your phone book. In my phone book? Oh my gosh, okay. Well, you know what? Um, I've got two that are probably... I'm going to have to give you here. One is the political one, which is Hillary Clinton. Very good, very impressive too. Um, and the other would be Stephen E. D'Souza, who is um, a screenwriter uh-huh. who wrote Die Hard oh. and um, host of other movies. Wow. Uh, the Running Man, um, Beverly Hills Cop, a whole load of the big blockbusters of the 80s and 90s. He is actually my uncle. 
Oh, um, there you go. It's um, my uncle-in-law. He's Jake's uncle. Um, but yeah, so I think that's probably pretty up there. Hey, two very impressive names, and I'm sure, no doubt, you could go on and on and on, but we we won't ask you anymore. Water or alcohol, Emma? Um, beer. Beer. Okay. If you <laughs> if you could be anyone alive or dead for just one day, who would that person be, Emma, and why? Gandhi. Gandhi, why? Uh, because I think his uh, philosophy of non-violence um, is inspiring. Yeah. And I think that that perspective is something that we can all learn from. Absolutely. Favourite spot in Ireland, Emma? Maybe somewhere where you go to reflect, to relax, and why? Mm, favourite Ireland um, would be... Um, tough question, actually. I mean, I would really, my favorite spot in Ireland is to go to any uh, beach on the north coast. Yes. Um, going across to Senegal and being able to go on any beach, especially with root dogs who love the ocean, um, is my happy place in terms of, I, uh, I love being by the water and we have some beautiful beaches here. Yeah, absolutely. I echo that. Give a 16-year-old, Emma D'Souza, some advice. My advice to a 16-year-old F would be to invest in better shoes. <laughs> I have a lifelong history of wearing per-foot attire any event. Um, and I always end up uh, in some terrible scenario where I'm wearing inappropriate footwear. It's not good. <laughs> Take care of your feet, people. Your feet, how you around, they're important. Very good. That, that's a good answer. It's the first time I've ever got that answer. So very good. And our last question, Emma, and again, we always end each podcast with this. If you could invite three people, either alive or dead, to your fictional dinner party, who would them three people be and why? Okay, well, it would have to be John F. Kennedy. Okay. Um, because of his vision and his uh, views. So Absolutely, I, I would agree. somebody witty, uh, <laughs> and I'm just at a blank as to all of my favorite co- com- comedians and uh, funny people in the world right now. Yeah. Um, so I, I get your sentiment. I, I would agree. You would always need a comedian or somebody witty at, at any dinner party. Yeah, it's got to be somebody. Um, and of course, now in this precise moment, I can't say that the moment that this conversation ends, you know, it will come to me and I'll go, Yeah. Uh, which is exactly what's going to happen because I'm drawing a complete blank on who my uh, 
crack giver would be in that particular scenario, but somebody finishes No, I understand. Listen, uh, as soon as somebody fires a question at you, it's not until you're driving down the road after it where you think, oh my God, how did I not remember that? So don't worry about I it. I know, we all experience it so often. Uh, so yeah, I am experiencing that exact feeling uh, in this moment. <laughs> you're okay, Emma. Um, Emma. Uh, stick with Sean Kennedy and Seamus, uh, Seamus Heaney for now. I think that's yeah, yeah, it's definitely a dinner party that I would personally like to be at because two very inspiring and inspirational people. Yeah, absolutely agree. Emma, that's it. You'll be delighted to hear. We're just an hour in here. And, um, well, uh, I really enjoyed it. Not, not delighted to hear it at the end at all. I've <laughs> had a brilliant time talking to you. It's been great, a great conversation that made me think a lot about um, some of the wider issues in Northern Ireland. Well, that's very kind of you, and I appreciate that. And um, I know our listeners will certainly hear enjoying what, what you had to say today. Emma, I, I genuinely mean this on behalf of the Shared Ireland team and also all our listeners. Thank you so much uh, for everything that you have done, by the way, throughout your entire campaign. Um, because, as we spoke about earlier, while it started off initially... For yourself and Jake, it had wider um, uh, ramifications to it for the entire society. So thank you on behalf of everyone for that. Thank you for uh, just being a lovely person and giving up an hour of your time today. And um, I would just suppose like to finish off just with sending out a wee message on behalf of the Shared Ireland team. In these strange and uncertain times that we're living through um, with a worldwide pandemic with COVID-19, just try to follow all the guidance that were being provided. Practice, um, I suppose, sensible things like washing your hands, wearing your face mask, uh, trying to you know not make unnecessary journeys if you can, and together we will hopefully all collectively um, defeat this virus. So Emma, I'm going to finish off here by giving you the last word, if you have anything else you'd like to say. Well, firstly, thank you so much for this opportunity and for the uh, conversation. Uh, I think for my last words, uh, I'll do a two here. One is um, that we need to work collectively to see the vision of the Good Friday Agreement realized. And two is to reiterate what you just said in these strange and difficult times to everyone to please stay safe, please take care of yourselves, and please follow the rules and guidelines to ensure that we can completely make our way through this difficult time. Emma D'Souza, it was an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. And if you enjoyed the podcast, folks, please don't be afraid to comment and a like and a retweet would be appreciated. Stay tuned for the next one coming shortly. Take care. Bye-bye.